and in our new space over there in Baldwinsville, so that's been a blessing, uh, but it's good to be with you uh, worshiping this morning. Uh, so welcome, and uh, we're going to jump right into Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, we are in Matthew chapter 20. I uh, spent the beginning part of this week in Fort Lauderdale and uh, woke up this morning and it was white. So, amen. Here we are. It was amazing down there. Um, not everybody lives like this. <laughs> I've come to realize. I'm sure there is a downside to, to being down there um, at some point. But it was nice to warm up my car again this morning before I got into it and scrape the windshield. So it's a blessing. You know what it is? They're weaker than us, right? They're weaker than us. They're just not as tough. That's, they're so, it's amazing. No matter where I travel, I, can, I walk through the airport. I don't even have to look at the screen to see where the flight is going. I'm like, Syracuse, those are my people. I can tell. It's just worn. It's worn on their face you know, that they live here. So... In Matthew chapter 20, uh, we are in verses 17 to 28 uh, this morning. So read with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one. We have it on the screen. Pull up the app on your phone, whatever you got. We're going to read it together. Matthew 20, 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her two sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Amen. Pray with me. God, open our hearts this morning. Illuminate your word to us that we would understand it. That we would be changed. That we would somehow, as your word is preached, as we read it in the scriptures, that we would somehow be more like you. That we would somehow... Love you better. Know you more. Draw us near this morning through your word. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. So in 2004, 
I, Aiden was born, my 18-year-old now. I guess that's the right math. Um, we were in Boston. Sophia was born in 2001, my oldest. And so at that point, I had been well uh, versed in Disney movies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe today it's Cocomelon. I'm not sure. Parents, uh, it's a young crowd here at Rhino. You guys got younger. You took all the old people to Covenant. <laughs> not all of them, John. You're still around, buddy. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, Disney movies. So I, when Aiden was born, he watched uh, Aladdin every day forever. Like, it just seemed like it was on, uh, it might have been DVD at the time, but we watched Aladdin over and over and over and over again. And one of the things that stood out to me was uh, this one scene that I love. First of all, Robin Williams was amazing in that movie, right? Like, the greatest genie ever, just hilarious. And there's this moment when Aladdin is still wanting to be the prince, and he is, is asking the genie for the exterior things that would make him a prince, right? Like, like, make me look like a prince, give me, like, all the gold, all the stuff, because I want Jasmine to like me. And, and things are kind of not going great. And he floats up on the magic carpet to the, uh, her balcony, and he's still kind of playing into this facade. And Robin Williams turns into a bee. Do you guys remember this? He's like, be yourself. Do you remember that part? <clears throat> and I would always watch that little part of the movie and think to myself, he's missing the point, right? He's about to blow it. Aladdin is totally missing the whole point. You see it in Belle, in Beauty and the Beast, right? Not to keep going with the Disney theme. But like Gaston's like this good-looking dude. She's walking through the crowd, singing the cool song with her nose in a book, and everybody's like around her, and Gaston is trying to impress her. And everyone else in the village, all the women love Gaston, right? He's good-looking, he's got money, he's strong, he's a hunter, and she could care less. And the entire time, he's just missing the point. The juxtaposition in this passage amazes me. It amazes me. I mean, I know sometimes it's easy to bust on the disciples, and, and I think we would be more accurate more often to put ourselves in their shoes in the narratives of the Gospels and be like, this was me. This is one of those moments where I'm kind of blown away. Like, Jesus declares, as you see in verse 17 to 19, for the third time, that he's going to die. And he does it in more detail than he has done it as of yet. He articulates to them for the first time, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be crucified. And I can't help but think that the disciples maybe at this point are thinking, they're, they're so bent on the idea that they are going to come into this kingdom and they're going to rule and there's going to be this incredible success story that maybe they think what Jesus is saying is absurd and they kind of dismiss it or they don't understand it. I think we see in the narrative of Luke um, in this very moment, Luke articulates they don't get it. They do not understand what he's saying. So for some reason they're not grasping, but Jesus for the first time in incredible detail tells them uh, he's telling them for the third time, but it, for the first time in this kind of detail, I'm going to be crucified, handed over to the Gentiles. 
mocked, flogged, and killed. The very next thing that we see happening in the narrative is James and John's mother, and we know from the other uh, Gospels, James and John are there with mom, hoping maybe uh, there's got to be a sense here that they knew there was some sort of inappropriateness to this, like, let's send mom in <laughs> and, uh, and see how it goes. And she comes to Jesus and she says, I want you to tell me that my sons will sit on your right hand and on your left hand in the kingdom. And James and John articulating in the other gospels, we see the exact same request where they say, we want to sit at your right hand at your, and at your left hand. We want to be great, Jesus. We, we see that the idea of sitting next to you in your kingdom at your right hand and at your left hand would signify for us a, a level of greatness beyond the other ten. And we want to achieve that. Can we be those guys? And as we saw in Matthew earlier, a couple of sermons ago, Jesus, after dealing with the rich young ruler... And the disciples saying, well, who could be saved? I mean, a camel through the eye of a needle? And, and Jesus says to them, what's impossible with man is what? It's possible with God. And there will come a day when there will be 12 thrones. You will sit with me in my kingdom. And you can maybe hear those words ringing in the, in the minds of James and John. They're like, all right, 12 thrones. We're in his kingdom. We're in heaven. This sounds awesome. But we want to be even better than that. We want to be on your right and on your left. And I just can't help but think that James and John, after Jesus articulates to them he's going to the cross to die, are missing the point. Are they not? Man, are they missing it. In their pursuit of greatness, they're missing the whole idea of the kingdom of God. And of course, the disciples get a little angry. And frustrated. Jesus has revealed his crucifixion. I think he recognizes in this revelation uh, the disciples' weakness. And he articulates at the end of this revelation, hey, listen, and I will be, I will rise again. And he points out the resurrection to them, I think, to help them avoid temptation as they are heading through this time period, heading closer and closer to the cross closer and closer to where he'll be turned over and they'll have to go through this jesus is reminding them he's infusing he's kind of throwing the seed into their hearts like yes i'm going to be given up i'm going to be mocked and flogged and crucified and i will rise again so jesus gives that to him he points out the resurrection but he doesn't because of their weakness spare them the reality of this he candidly declares the whole matter. He points out the way to overcome temptation, namely by looking forward to the certainty of his resurrection. Guys, I'm going to be killed, but I am going to rise again. But it's necessary that his death should go before this triumph. In the meantime, take hope. I will rise again, but I need to die. He's, he's laying it out for them for the, for the first time in detail, verbally, I have to die. And it seems like they missed the point. Seems like they walk away from this revelation of the crucifixion and the need for it, and they miss it. Luke tells us they don't understand. I love this part. Jesus, uh, the boys 
asked this question and uh, through their mother and and Jesus looks at them and and he says, "You do not know what you're asking." I love that. You don't even know. You don't even know what you're asking for. You want to sit on my right hand and my left hand? You don't even know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? What a question. What a question. I was sitting with a buddy of mine named Mike. He is very good looking dude. I don't know. He just is. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's just in phenomenal shape. Like, just cut up. You know those guys? Like, no body fat. Like, muscles everywhere. He clearly works hard, but I don't ever see that. I just see that he looks good. And, and I've asked him, like, dude, I want to look like that. As I'm stuffing my face with a sandwich from Darwin's, and he's eating a salad, like, he's looking at me like, Dude, do you even know what you're asking, right? <laughs> right? Can you drink the cup that I drink, right? <laughs> and the answer is clearly no, right? <laughs> There's something he's been through to be where he is that I have not been through. Um, but here's Jesus looking at, at these two guys. He's like, you don't even know what you're asking me. You don't know what this glory, the, the glory of my resurrection, the glory of our salvation you're not even beginning to grasp what it means and what it's going to take. Are you able to drink this? You're thinking about greatness. You're thinking about ruling. You're thinking about sitting on a throne next to me in my kingdom. Can you drink this cup? Do you even know what it means to taste the cup that I am about to bear? We see in the Old Testament this cup often you see it in psalms you see it all throughout the old testament references the cup of judgment the bitter cup of the wrath of god poured out jesus says you don't even know i can't help but think to the moment where jesus is getting closer and closer to the reality of this moment and even jesus who is fully god and fully man, the incarnate God, uh, part of the, the triune God. He is, he is, he is in the garden, and, he, and he's on his knees praying. Fully God, fully man. And he says to the Father, if this cup, if this cup could pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Recognizing in anguish, sweating blood, the reality of the cup that's before him. The, the, the task that awaits him in the cross. Here's the reality of the cup. That in many ways it represents knowing Jesus and his suffering. But here's the, the even more beautiful reality of the cup. That believers, we don't drink the wrath that we deserve. We don't drink the wrath that we deserve. And through Christ's suffering, 
undergo the judgment that we deserve. Because we're justified in Christ, amen? And we're heirs to His glory because of the cup He took on our behalf. There's also a reality that Jesus points out to James and John that that while you won't drink the cup of the wrath of God that is reserved for sin, uh, He's going to take and bear that cup. He says to them, listen, you will drink of the cup. You will know me in my sufferings. Look at Romans 8, 17. We see this. Paul points it out. And if children then heirs, which we are because of Christ, but heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's the reality of our faith, that we we will walk through in this earth tribulation. We will suffer many times as we see in the sermon of the mount blessed are those who suffer for my sake we will suffer for the sake of christ james james later on is as clueless as he is at this moment later on we see in acts that james does suffer and he dies at the sword herod kills him john boiled in oil uh, uh, banished to the island of Patmos. He, he, he experienced suffering for the sake of Christ. And Jesus, letting them know a couple of things here. Can you even take, I, I love their answer, right? I mean, think about it. Can you, can you bear the cup? Can you drink of the cup that it's going to take that I have to drink? And, and they're like, yeah. Yes, Jesus. Yes, we can. Okay, guys. No idea. What that means? The answer is no. Only Jesus could bear for us the wrath of God for sin. And then at the same time, they do know Jesus and Christ in his sufferings as they walk through the reality of their lives in serving Christ and suffer for his sake. Jesus here, we see, is again taking what we would naturally think is, is right and good and, and what makes someone great in the world. And he's teaching on the kingdom of God and flipping it upside down. But we want to be great. We want to be at your right and left hand. How do we, how do we get to greatness? And of course, in the Roman shame and honor culture that they had been around and and in that world, the ambition, the selfish ambition of their hearts would not have culturally be seen as a bad thing. Jesus, we're ambitious. We want to lead. We want to be at your right and at your left hand. And we see Jesus honestly turns this upside down uh, uh, for, for the whole world. And we see the themes of the reality of what it means to be great even woven through our culture because of Christ. But Jesus declares, listen, th- this isn't greatness in the way that you think of greatness. Let me explain to you, let me show you what real greatness is, how it is for you to be great. And I love, he's been doing this right along, has he not? And he's talking about seeds in the kingdom of God and, and explaining uh, the principles of the kingdom of God. The children come running to him at one point. We just talked about this several weeks ago. And the disciples are like, whoa, Guys, seen and not heard. Like, get out of here. Jesus is doing really important things. 
And Jesus goes, hold on a minute. Let the children come to me. You think they're annoyance? You think they're in the way? It's these that the kingdom of God is for. Illustrating to them in the arrogance of their heart that the desperateness and the need and the, the, the need to be protected and the need uh, in, in the desperateness to, to reach out to somebody as a child, to be childlike, that's, that's who the kingdom of God is for. You think you're, you're big and tough and smart and awesome? You need to be like a kid to enter into the kingdom of God. Whoa, I mean, he's turning things upside down. The rich young ruler is like, hey man, I got it together. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. Oh, you whip off some, some commandments? I got that. And Jesus is like, give everything away that you have. And he's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. It's, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, and the disciples are like, well, who, then who's saved? And all of us sitting right here should be saying the same thing. Who's, who could be saved then? Well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is teaching these kingdom principles, and here he comes. We want to be great. How do we do that? Well, as you can see, the disciples get frustrated, right? You get that. The other ten are like, what did they do? James and John said, what? Hold on a minute. And Jesus hears the rumblings of the other disciples. Because they're like, oh, how come? And, and, and here's what we get from this. The other disciples aren't being super gracious in their anger. It's not like they're saying, listen, Jesus, we get it. Like, first, last, last, first. No, they don't get it. They're saying, what do you mean James and John are going to sit at your right and left hand? That should be me, right? There's, there's the same uh, anger that's rising out of selfish ambition and a desire to be great. And Jesus takes this moment to teach. He takes this moment to explain to them kingdom principles. Listen, guys, I just told you I'm going to the cross. Let me explain something to you. And we see this as we, as we move on in the passage here. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you shall drink the cup, but to sit on my right hand and my left hand, it's not for mine to grant, but for those whom it has been prepared by the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant in the two at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, I love this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're great ones, the rulers, the great ones, they lord it over them. And they exercise authority over them. Shall not be so among you. And here it is. Listen close. This is where he flips it on its head. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. What? Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Guys, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. Hey, Jesus, when we get to the kingdom, can we be the top two? Can we be the greatest at your right and at your left? Yeah, you, you don't know what cup that, that drink tastes like. I don't know if you can take the cup that I'm about to take. Yeah, we can take it. But let me explain to you guys. You want to be great? 
You need to be the least. You need to be a servant. You want to be first, you need to be last. You need to be slave. He flips the idea of greatness on his head. He says, guys, the Gentiles, when they're in charge, they lord it over their people. You ever meet anyone like that? Nothing more depictive of this passage that when a young person gets authority in any job, right? It was even like when I was worked at Burger King for 10 minutes when I was a kid. It was like the 18-year-old supervisor. Man, were they excited to have some power. Can I take my break? Nope. You know. All right. And you can see when a young person gets a little bit of authority sometimes. It's like, wow. All right. They're really excited about this. Jesus is like, that's not leadership. The Gentiles that lord their authority over people, that are, that are uh, lording it over them, that are ruling over them, you want to be gr- that's not going to be so for you. You want to be great in this kingdom, you need to serve. You want to be first, you need to be a slave. Let me show you leadership. And he goes to the cross. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So who is our example and what does he show us? Jesus, who God incarnate comes to earth Humbles himself, being born in the likeness of a man. Doesn't hold on to that, that, that reality, but he humbles himself to the point of being born in the likeness of what he had created. And he's obedient. And he serves. And he, and he serves even to the point of dying on a cross. The Jews would have understood, the disciples would have understood that cursed is a person who hangs on a tree. He was cursed for us. Went to the cross on our behalf. Served us in that way. Demonstrated greatness. We see that he is exalted. There is no name above his name. Every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that what? Jesus is Lord. He is exalted, not because he reached and and clawed and grasped for greatness, but because he served and he went to the cross. He came and he paid the price for us. And he demonstrates for us what real greatness is. The point isn't for you on the exterior to be the one in charge, to be looked at, to be touted, to rule over people, but to come and to serve, to come and to be a slave. To offer yourself up at the expense of yourself for others. That's what Jesus did for us. 
And in doing so, he teaches us greatness. What ambitions reign in our lives? What actually motivates us to do anything in life? What ambition do we pursue at the expense of others as we climb the corporate ladder, as we climb whatever arena or sphere of influence God has put us in? What are the ambitions of our heart? What what is it that we are pursuing and trying to get? What is it that we desire other people to think of us? What is it we desire other people to say about us? Are we trying to be something? And how are we doing it? Are we missing the point? The point of the gospel? And the point of the life that Jesus calls us to? I know that probably since Missio days and into through renovation days, I've talked about this particular passage a lot. But, and I know some of the folks probably haven't been here, but I know Daly's have probably heard this a million times. But I can't help but think about Jesus' further example in this regard. And I'm going to close with this. It's one of those passages in Scripture that sometimes comes out of me when I'm speaking because it means so much to me. But it is really, really relevant to this passage, and we see it in John chapter 13. We know from the other Gospels that the disciples are arguing again about who's the greatest. Man. Jesus is a patient, patient man. Is he not? God is patient with us. Thank God. So as they talk about who's going to sit at his right hand, Who's going to sit at his left hand? They are in the upper room at the Last Supper here. You can kind of see the picture painted from all the Gospels in this moment. And Jesus does a remarkable thing. Let's read it together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he's about to die. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter's reaction. I love it. I love the response from the gut of Peter. As the Lord of the universe, as the Messiah, he had declared him to be the Messiah. He knew he was Lord, Rabbi, stands up from the dinner table, takes off his outer garments, goes over to the door where the servant who washes their feet in every house that they walk into is sitting, moves him over, grabs the servant's towel, and calls the disciples over for him to wash their feet. Peter's reaction is beautiful. And honestly, folks, this morning as we sit here and reflect on the word of God, it should be ours. Peter's mind is blown. And he looks at Jesus and says, no, no way. You're not going to, you, Jesus, are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't understand. If you don't let me serve you in this way, you have no part in me. Peter's like, well, wash everything. Folks, if you don't know Jesus as the servant Lord in your life, then you have no part in him. You see, Jesus is preparing them for a greater service to come. He's about to go to the cross and pay for sin. He's about to hang and suspended on a cross and, and bear the weight of the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God for all of sin, saved up from Adam to the end of the world, for those who he had chosen would be poured out upon him and he would become the most despicable sight in the history of the world as he hung on the cross and bore the weight of sin for everybody. And he's saying, if you don't let me serve you, you have no part in me. And as I reflect on this, I can't help but feel like Peter and say, no way. I know the depth of my sin. I know the betrayal in my heart. I know the, the, the degradation in my soul. I know where I fall short. And, and, and Jesus, you, the one who doesn't deserve this, I deserve this, the one who doesn't deserve this, you would get off your throne. You would come to me. Now listen, you have to reflect on this personally. For some of you, you can sit here and say, well, God loves us. God loves the church. And, and in your mind, you can grasp that he loves groups. But I want you to think about you. Jesus got off his throne and he's coming to your feet. And saying, if you don't let me serve you in this way, you have no part in me. And we have to let him wash our feet. The God, the perfect glorious God of the universe would come to me and say, I want to wash, I'm going to take a towel and I'm going to wash your feet. You need to let me serve you in this way. You think for any moment, any one of us could experience the grace of God and somehow walk away and be like, oh, I'm going to do what I want with my life. No way that doesn't exist. You get to that moment where you recognize Jesus has served you in this way. There is only one response. A life of worship. Wash all of me. What, what do you need from me? How can I serve others? How can I get on my feet and serve others considering this incredible, enormous service you have given to me? 
You want to be great? Pick up a towel. And do even just the minuscule amount compared to what he's done for you. For someone else. If you don't know him as servant Lord, you have no part in him. We have to reflect as Christians on this gospel. And our hearts, at some level, should cry out like Peter's. No way. No, Jesus, not you. Not you. You can't be the one to wash my feet. Jesus says to Peter, yeah, you've got to let me do this. You've got to let me serve you. The response of the Christian in light of the gospel must be a life of service. It must be a life of holding a towel if we even remotely, accurately grasp the reality of what Jesus has done for us in the cross. Amen? I think James and John came to understand. James died for it. Why would, I had a teacher ask me, Social studies teacher at FM. She's a good friend of mine, her and her husband. She's an atheist. We were standing at a dinner party and she said to me, I have to teach the reality of these Jewish uprisings over this period of history. She asked this question. Why did Jesus make such an amazing difference and his movement change the face of the world? Change the face of the world and the way that we think about things and the other movements didn't i was like huh it's an interesting question from a historian said to her there's only one explanation he was the messiah he died and guess what he rose again and they saw him a bunch of people making up the resurrection don't spend the rest of their lives being persecuted and dying for a lie. They led lives of service to their death because he is who he said he is. Amen? Because he did serve in that way. He did die for us. And he did, as he said, rise again. And they saw him after the resurrection, and they turned the world upside down through the grace and the spirit of God. Amen? Let's do the same. If I could give one practical application in closing. It's not to do things. I think the reflection practically of this passage is spend some time every day thinking about this reality in your life and let the sparks of the grace of God, of the cross of Jesus Christ, of the reality of the gospel, keep it in your, in your, in your face. Keep it in front of you. Meditate on it. Pray about it. Delight in it. Think about what he's done in his service. And let the sparks of that fly off into your life. 
and watch that reality as you absorb it and, and pray on it and meditate on it change every aspect of what you actually think greatness is, what you pursue, and what you do in your life. Amen? The gospel changes us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. That's all we can do is live lives of thanks, gratefulness, lives of worship in response to the gospel. And so we ask today that you would help us to worship you with our lives. Worship you as we sing. Yes, worship you as we hear your word and pray your word on Sunday morning. Yes, we set this day aside every week because you are worthy of our worship. But God, I pray that you would help us worship you with our life as we work, as we deal with our bosses, as we love our spouse, as we raise our kids, that we would pick up a towel and worship you and respond to the gospel with the way that we live. That our life would be like a worship song. That it would bring glory to your name and who you are and what you've done. That we, like the end of that passage in John 13, would display your love. That people would know we follow you by the way we love each other. Help us to serve in love because that is what it means to be great. To be a slave. Spend us. Spend our lives for your kingdom in this place. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Well, we get to come to that moment where we tangibly are reminded of the reality of the gospel. We actually have physical, God has given us physical elements because we forget. And he has given us these physical elements that we can hold in our hands to remember that his body was broken for us. To remember that his blood was spilled for us. Let me remind you, this is not something this morning that you are doing for God. This is a gift to you from God. You're receiving the elements this morning as you come to the Lord's table as a gift from God. His body was broken. His blood that was spilled. What a remarkable gift we have in this. We come to the Lord's table every, day, every week here because as we gather, we want to be constantly reminded. We want to worship in a way that God has prescribed for us. And he's prescribed this. If you know Jesus this morning and you rely on him, you have given your life to him and rely on him for salvation, you've responded to the gospel and his service to you, then this table's for you. If you've come and, you've, and you believe in Jesus and you've been baptized into his church, this is something that the church, that God has prescribed for us to do to worship him in. If that's not you yet, that's okay. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'd ask for you to refrain from coming and partaking so we can be faithful to the scriptures. But if you have questions, we would love to speak with you about it. What does it mean to, to respond to Christ and his service on the cross? But we get that opportunity this morning. So I'm going to ask the servers to come forward.
And we're going to have elements on either side. There will be the bread and the cup. It's gluten-free. It's juice, guys. But uh, it is these elements represent this significant moment for us, this meal. And so come on up as you're ready. I'll, I'll call you in a second. But if you would stand with me, we're, we're going to come down the center aisle. And you can hit either side and return to your seat. And then we will partake together. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your table. Thank you that you understand us so well in our need for this moment. 